it, it feels like you're again running up against a wall like why is no one noticing 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 and then it's just like bam one day oh they noticed and all of a sudden like i went from you know trying cases that i was like ah, i'm not that excited about this i'm not that excited to hey here's a super high profile case we want you to handle it because we've been seeing what you're doing like go go run and you look at it and you're just like oh like that's that's like 50 steps higher than where I just was at. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Lewis and I are college students at the University of Alabama. We started this podcast to really dive deep into some of our curiosities. And in the process of doing that, we've interviewed 53 different high performers. Today, we have on Robbie Crabtree. Robbie is the founder of Performative Speaking, which was recently acquired by OnDeck. Uh, he's a trial lawyer and a coach of the national mock trial team at SMU Law School. Robbie has had a pretty incredible journey since last July when he first started putting content out on the internet, on Twitter, on his personal blog, and grew a pretty substantial following in a pretty short amount of time for public speaking, writing, building an audience, and kind of that founder's journey. Uh, towards the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, he launched a course on performative speaking, which has been exceptionally successful despite how new he is to the content game. Uh, we took this interview as an opportunity to ask him both about how he grew his audience so quickly and the tactics that he used. But before that, we actually, out of our own curiosity, chose to speak a lot about what he actually teaches in the course. So what is performative speaking? How does one get good at performative speaking? What are the essence of storytelling and what makes a good story versus a bad story? And how do you actually learn how to tap into that difference. Uh, and then we also talk about some of the other great ideas Robbie talks about in some of his writing. It was a really interesting educational conversation and I think you all will enjoy listening to it. So with that, I'm gonna switch over now to our interview with Robbie Crabtree. Robbie, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We're super excited to do this interview. Thanks y'all. Lewis, Kyle, good to be here, excited to chat. Real quick, could you just share kind of your, your backstory, some context, where you're from, where you went to college, why you went to law school and kind of what that early career before you started this whole content creation, course creation. Yeah, let's get through all that boring stuff pretty quickly. So yeah, right? <laughs> my, my, my background, I grew up in Houston. I went to college in Philadelphia at Haverford College. When I was there, I went ahead and did something that was very dumb and that was followed the things that I enjoyed. And so that meant being a history major. And I say that that's very dumb because when you're in college and you're getting out, there's nothing you can really do with the history major unless I wanted to go teach at a high school. And that was definitely not what I wanted to achieve with life. So I loved, I loved my time there. I played college baseball. I studied history. I got to write a senior thesis. Like it was super cool putting together a year long, you know, 70 page research paper like that. But then again, I needed something to do after that. So I left, took a year off, worked in sales, worked selling at a nutrition store, like super basic, like GNC type deal, which is one of those things that a lot of people I think frown frown on this idea of like just getting like a retail job and going and learning these skills, but it was incredibly powerful. Like I'm still very thankful for that year that I took off because it taught me a lot of sales, customer interaction, how to deal with people, how people think. And just again, showed kind of that value of, of some hard work and that you got to kind of put in the time to, to build something out. So that was a great experience to learn that sales and customer service kind of background. Then I went to law school which was at SMU here in Dallas. Law school is interesting because generally speaking, where you go to law school is where you end up living because it tends to be where you get your first job. So you kind of have to make that, that decision. And as I was looking throughout kind of the country at places I was getting in, whether that was you know New York, DC, Boston, places in, in, the, in those kind of environments, 
I said to myself, I don't want to go back where it's cold. I did four years in Philly where we were dealing with 20 inches of snow at a time. I was playing baseball in freezing weather. I hated it. So I said, there's no way I want to live in this freezing cold weather. As I, I say that, we actually have snow right. out on our ground right now in Dallas because it's it's stupid cold here right now. But I went to, to law school at SMU because it was close to home. It was in Dallas. My family's still in Houston. It was a good law school. It was uh, something like the 42nd ranked law, law school at the time. Went there, ended up getting involved, thinking I was going to be like the next Harvey Specter of suits or something of that nature, you know. And, and granted, I still would love to be Harvey Specter of suits. So like, I'm not putting that dream entirely on hold. One day I'll, I'll have his cars and, and that apartment that he has overlooking what they say is New York, even though it's really Toronto. But ultimately, I, I realized my skill set was really as a, a trial lawyer, as somebody who could speak and get in front of a courtroom of people and just really inspire them and move them and those sort of things. So that led me into trial work. So during law school, I spent most of my time interning with various DA offices, litigation attorneys, judges, and then also taking part in the national mock trial team and competing each semester on that, uh, that front. When that happened, that kind of led me into the space I ended up being for the first really six years of my career, which was as a criminal prosecutor. And that started in Denton County, which is a little bit north of Dallas. And after two years, I came down to Dallas County, which is obviously the big county here. Ended up getting a job by telling them I wanted to try the biggest, baddest, most serious cases. And that was with the number one, number two, and number three in the office sitting there, as I told them this, with, you know, just, it had to just be a ridiculous amount of just pure insanity coming out of my mouth that they thought about, like, who is this kid that's saying he wants these cases? Like, what does he know? As I look back on it, it's really funny, but it ended up being what got me the job because the number two in that that meeting actually told me about a year and a half later, that was the moment that sold him on me is that I wanted that kind of, kind of situation. So for the next, you know, four years of my career, I was working kind of there handling anything from violent felonies. So robberies, intoxicated manslaughters, aggravated assaults, and then ultimately moved into even higher level stuff like murders, capital murders for most of my last few years. Then the last year of my career as a prosecutor, I actually was a child abuse prosecutor. So when you think like law and, law and order SVU, that was literally what I did. Day in and day out, seeing the worst of the worst, talking to kids who had been victimized, human trafficked, all sorts of really gnarly, nasty stuff. Tried a ton of cases, was put in a position to basically clean up a docket that was really overlooked and hadn't been handled properly. And then after a year, just I hit 100 jury trials and I said, that's it's time, time to move on. It was pretty rough too. I say, as a child abuse prosecutor, you basically remove a piece of your soul and put it outside of yourself because of the just horrific nature of it all. So as I moved on, then I went into private practice. I started working some criminal defense, but mostly civil rights violations, wrongful death claims where people have been hurt or killed because of whether it was racial, socioeconomic, things of that nature, where they've been treated poorly by government institutions, private institutions, businesses, people, things of that nature. And then ultimately that led me to where I am today. And we'll obviously get to talk more about that, but that's the quickest version that I can, can give for, for I, I don't know, like 30, 32 years of background. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to a lot of that as we move forward. But a lot of that experience really leads me to believe that you'd be qualified to, to teach a performative speaking course. So I think it's, it's pretty nice that you, uh, you landed there. Uh, and we want to talk about the cohort-based course that you started, which is called Performative Speaking 
but could you just briefly introduce it to us so that our audience knows what it is and, and what you want it to be? Yeah, so performance speaking is what I call my philosophy of speaking. And it, it, I use that, that name for, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it sounds close enough to like performance speaking and public speaking and persuasive speaking that people get what it means without having to call it one of those very generic terms that everybody else uses. But then I also like the actual word itself. So performative means ever relating to performance art, which is really what I think about when it's speaking. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But the other kind of root of this is performativity. That word means the ability for words to bring about change. When we combine those two, performance art and the ability for words to bring about change, that's exactly what I believe in, right? That's, that's what I want this to be about. The reason I call it performative speaking, though, is my philosophy is very much based on using other inspiration sources from your own life. So that could be art forms, movies, television, pop culture, travel experiences, things that you've actually felt, experienced yourself, and realize like that deep emotional connection that it had to you. And then using those inspiration sources that you have, these external sources, as your guide so that we can essentially, once we figure out what we want to achieve in any sort of talk, speech, presentation, pitch, whatever it may be, we can reverse engineer by using these external sources we have. So we're not just trying to create from a blank page of paper. We're essentially saying, I want to get here and here's where I felt this. How do I merge them together? Like what's that bridge to get me there? And my job is to teach people that bridge. So when we get into this performative speaking, the cohort-based course is just teaching these ideas to people about how to be a great speaker. And I think my problem with so many speakers who are teaching this stuff is they honestly have no background. They've never been in high stakes situations. They've never done it themselves. And so they don't understand what it feels like to be in that situation. I love the saying by Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Most of these people teaching speaking have never been punched in the mouth in a situation where things go wrong, where the stakes are super high. If they fail, horrific things can happen. They've never been there. The worst thing that's ever happened to them is maybe they got up on in front of a stage and they didn't get a standing ovation. Like that's not real stakes to me. That, that isn't what actually helps you really refine it because you're not in that, like that forge of that super hot fire to figure out like, how do we actually make this steel super strong? So for me, I wanted to teach people a holistic approach to speaking. I wanted to teach it based on like all these things I've tested and refined and iterated on because not only was I doing it in a courtroom myself and testing it with judges, with juries, with bosses in negotiations, I mean, with, you know, tens of millions of dollars on the line when I'm in, in private practice, but also I, for three years, was teaching persuasive speaking at the SMU Law School and also coaching the National Mock Trial Team with students. So I was being able to, to put my philosophy into their kind of minds and see, is it working? Are they finding success? And once I saw that it was creating success and I really kind of had this this vision down, then I wanted to reach out and make it available to a broader public. And so that's ultimately what the course ended up being was this five week long cohort based course. And a cohort based course just means everyone's taken together. Like there's a finite amount of time that it's open. It's not ongoing enrollment. And you essentially go through it step-by-step step with the other students in your group. And we teach it and it's live and you're actually there. It's interactive. We're using breakout rooms. Like I'm the one teaching it from start to finish. I'm teaching everything. And then that's really what it is. So we ran that back in October and ultimately that led to on deck acquiring the program and now I'm running it through them. Yeah. One of the things that Lewis and I have found throughout running this interview podcast for last year is that when you, when you give somebody the free way to talk about something they're passionate about, they just light up and it's, it's awesome to see that 
happen uh, again and again. And I can tell, you know, that you're passionate about teaching people how to how to speak and how to get themselves across to really unlocking like a, a giant world of opportunity for these people. But one question that I have is like, as uh, a trial lawyer, you know, you are literally in the highest stakes possible. And, and when you're delivering these long form speeches, like you're going to mess up at some point during them, you're going to fumble, you're going to roll over your words. So like practically, what tips do you have for when you're in those moments? How do you how do you roll through fumbling like that and not lose your audience and, and, and the story? Yeah, we could spend like the next hour talking about that if we wanted to, because there's a lot of pieces to that. But it's a great question, Kyle. And it really does remind me because again, most of the stuff I was doing. So the last case I actually tried was a murder case that I was defending somebody on. I thought he was innocent and had done self-defense. And ultimately the jury ended up agreeing with me once I went through my closing argument and laid it out for them, which is pretty shocking considering that it was all on video and he admitted to killing the guy. And normally in Texas, if, if you kill somebody, you go, to, you go to prison. That's just the way it works. But again, in that, like I remember that that closing argument was probably 30 minutes. I mean, most of the, the speeches I was giving as a trial lawyer were, I mean, sometimes you're doing something super short, but most of the time, like I'm talking to people for 30 minutes to an hour at once with no notes, no script, no nothing, just like rolling, right? And so you, of course, mess up. Like that is just the nature of speaking. You're not going to be perfect. If, if we think people oftentimes make this mistake of, of, of forgetting, when you watch like a politician delivering, delivering their speech, they have a teleprompter. Like it's, it's there, they're reading from it. And they still mess up. So when you mess up, like as a speaker, the easiest way to think about this is a couple, couple ways. First off, nobody oftentimes realizes you messed up because they don't know what you meant to say. They don't have like a script in front of them saying, oh, like Kyle messed up right there. Right. So one, just realize that, like, don't call attention to it unless you need to. Like there's some things that you mess up and you need to call attention to it. Let's say like you have a drink in your hand and you spill it on yourself. Like, don't just ignore that. Be like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. Like what a perfect time y'all. And then just roll back into it. Like you can kind of brush it off and make a joke. But in terms of how do you stay focused? This is where I really think about frameworks. And this is why I, I tell people there's a five, five step kind of five piece framework that I, I like to give people when it comes to speaking. And it, it helps them guide through what they're trying to do. And especially one of these pieces. And the one piece that I'll say as that five, five piece framework that really helps people is what I call the theme. And we think about theme. It's like the one central idea that we want people to walk away from any sort of talk with, what do we want them to remember? If they said, I heard Robbie talk and it was all about this. Well, if I know what I want this to be, even if I get sidetracked, what I think of that is that's my North star. I can always get back because I can look up and say, this is what I'm trying to achieve. So now I just point everything back to that. And the reason the framework is so successful is, and, and quickly I'll give the framework because that'll make sense as I'm talking about it, but it's basically five pieces. So step one is what is your goal? And that's different than outcome. That's actually the step before your outcome. Outcome would be making the sale because we can never actually make, like we can't reverse engineer making the sale we don't know what's going on with that person on that day. So they may not be in that mind space to actually buy something on any given day. But we can always say the step before is the goal. What do we want them to kind of be thinking as they walk away? We also need to, step two is figuring out what emotion will make them feel that, like think that way. So if I want them to think, hey, I'm really intrigued by this idea and I need to explore it further, what emotion is going to get them there? How am I going to inspire them to get to that, that goal? 
So that's the emotion part. And that's really what I call the strategy piece of this framework. We're really thinking kind of big picture and trying to kind of game and play chess with how we're going to interact with them and lead them to what we want them to get to. The next three are really what I call the tactics of, of the speech itself. And that's what's your hook, what's your theme, what's your dismount. And the reason those are important, so hook is obviously like it sounds, it's a hook to get people interested. Then you have your theme, which is your central idea, that North Star, and your dismount is like a gymnast when they, they land after their routine. If you blow the dismount, you blow the entire piece, right? Because like we've seen gymnasts, they lose all their points by that. The reason the theme and the dismount work so nicely is if we know what our central idea is, our, our North Star, and we know where we want to end, like we know our final piece, like we know what we're trying to get to, well, then even if we get sidetracked because we screwed up, we, we fumbled, we said something wrong, we can always think, what's my North Star and where am I trying to end? And that can always guide us back onto the proper route so that we actually finish and get back on track to deliver for our audience. Is that all five pieces? Yeah. So it's what, okay. what's your goal? What's the emotion? What's the hook? What's your theme? What's your dismount? Okay. So I have a question. I really like that framework and I'm really inspired when people, you know, can condense their entire approach to something complicated in a way that is easy to communicate like that. So my question is actually like the development process of that framework. Was that something you consciously used throughout your time, giving those hour long speeches and preparing them? Or was it only, you know, a couple months back when you decided, stop, I'm going to teach this. Uh, and you may have actually been teaching this before that in, in the classroom, but to what extent were you actually using this framework versus realizing you were using it in hindsight? Early on in my career, I'd say I just kind of used it without putting a, a formal name to it. And I think that that's kind of what you, you do early on in your career is you're not formalizing anything because you're just trying to figure it out and you're just testing ideas and seeing what sticks. And then all of a sudden you realize like you're, you're doing the same thing over and over. And then what, what starts to happen is in my career, at least as a trial lawyer, I started being very successful. So a lot of other attorneys were coming to me, either watching me in trial, asking me questions, asking for my guidance, like wanting me to essentially mentor, teach them, do these sort of things, even inside of our own office. And so when you start going through that, that's when you figure out like you've got to formalize it so other people can understand it. And I think this is the trick where and why the course was so successful when I ran the performance speaking course is a lot of experts in their field are experts, but they don't know how to translate their knowledge to other people. They don't understand how to work with that kind of beginner's mindset of like they don't know what they don't know. And so at first when I was trying to help people, I had that same issue. I was like, what do you mean you don't understand this? Like it's, it's super simple. Just do this. And be like, I don't, Robbie, I don't understand what you mean. Like, what, what, what do you mean? Like, how do you create emotion? And I would say like, you need to create emotion in your jury. And be like, I don't know how to do that. Like, how do you think about that? I don't know. I just do. And that's when you start thinking through, oh, like I need an actual process, an actual framework to give people that will make sense so that they can start using it. And that's really where I started to formalize that. And then I was using it all the time. And I tell, I give clients it, I give my, my students it. And really tell them, hey, here's how we do it. And what I love to actually use is pop culture to help people understand this, right? So like when I'm talking, what's your goal? What's your emotion? Like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite pieces to actually go and watch and study. And it hits every one of these is the Joker scene when he's first talking to the mob in the dark night. And he's delivering that like, want to see a magic trick? Puts the pencil in and then boom, slams the guy guy's face into the pencil. Ta-da! It's magic, right? Like what a great hook. And then you go through like everything he's trying to achieve. His goal is to, is to convince them that he's the answer to their problem. 
The emotion is he wants them to feel completely helpless in their current state. I just told you what his hook is. His theme is that he's like essentially that never do anything for free if you're good at it. Like you should always get paid. That's that's his big theme in there. And then the, the dismount is when he takes out the Joker card, puts it on the table, opens up his vest and is playing around with the, the grenade right here as he's walking out. That's his big dismount, his big moment to show them, hey, like I really am this crazy and we'll take care of this. So when we think about it, like you can watch this three minute clip of the Joker and it hits every one of these five pieces of the framework. And so I can give people this and say like, here's your example, like this guy nails it. And so I love that because it's a really relatable way to teach people as you start looking at the world a little bit differently once you figure these things out. It's such a powerful process and it's something that you know, I'm starting to realize I see often and often more so than I used to is I used to kind of think negatively of like, you know, the generic examples, like, oh, not saying that's a generic example at all, but like, why does everyone default to sports? Why does everyone default to the same movies when they explain things? And it's kind of just because it's effective. Like it's kind of because what other ways do we have to communicate such a multifaceted idea in such a short amount of time? Like where, what common ground do we already have? Otherwise you have no starting point. And you have to build a ton of time building that up. I mean, the other thing, like I would love to use other art forms. Like I'd love to use symphonies and operas and ballets and, and, you know, paintings by the, by the masters and sculptures and all that sort of stuff. But here's the problem, especially in the U S most people don't have a clue about any of that stuff. Like that's the sad reality. Like people just don't understand that. If, if I want to talk about Rachmaninoff, I can't tell you how many times I've brought him up like a Russian composer. And they're like, I don't know who that is. And so it's really hard for me to relate on that, that level because a lot of people aren't familiar with these kinds of works. So what do you, what do you go back to? You fall back to things that you know are going to be successful because just look at box office. Like I try to choose the biggest movies possible to use, the biggest TV shows possible to use because I know that that's going to reach the, the largest number of people. They've seen it. Like maybe I don't love the movie Avatar, but you know what? hundreds of millions of people have seen that movie, which means if I say something about it, people are going to understand, oh, the blue people movie. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's talk about that and how you can learn something from them, right? Like I could right now drop into like, you, you want to know why the, the speech by, you know, Sam was successful when he was like Tarak Maktou or whatever it was. And it was because like how he made his entrance and like, that's his big hook. And that immediately sets his credibility. And that's why all of a sudden people are gravitating towards what he's having to say. Like, Simple things like that, I can like, it's just easy to pull those out and be relatable to people because they've seen them, they've experienced them, they know exactly what you're talking about in that moment. Yeah, I wanna dive into how you watch like TV and, and movies toward the end. But one question that I have for you is like, this might fall flat on its face because it's, I feel like there's like unlimited nuance here. But one thing, you know, I, I'm bought into storytelling and how important that is of a skill to have just like with friends and with people. But one thing that I found is like the audience has to be primed for a story to really hit. And like, you know, otherwise it'll, it'll fall flat on its face or a joke or something like that. So like, do you have any tips for priming an audience beyond that framework that you, that you laid out for us just now? So I don't think the issue is that you need to prime the audience. I think it's the way that we deliver stories. And, and this mm -hmm. is going to be a, my, my breakdown of why I think most people get storytelling wrong. Most people, most people tell stories factually accurate. That should not be the goal. You should be fact, like you should be factually close, but you should be emotionally accurate. And the reason I say this is because 
when you're telling a story, you're telling something that like you experienced and you have your own life experiences that frame the lens that you see life through. So that story affected you in some way because of your life experience. Your audience doesn't have that. Mm. Your audience has no idea. So like something that's super funny to you may not be funny to them at all because they don't have the same background as you. What I mean by emotional truth is this. Let's say I was being chased by a dog. And let's say, for instance, I was terrified of dogs growing up. This is not the case, but like, let's just say it is because I had been attacked by a dog or something had happened that really just like created trauma in me. So let's say one day I'm walking down the street and I see a dog and I just freak out. I think it's going to attack me. It's going to mutilate me. And I, I just take off and run and have to jump the fence and think that I just escaped death or some sort of serious injury. Except that dog was 25 pounds, was never going to be able to hurt me, was not going to be able to do anything. If I tell that story factually accurate, of this time I was chased by this 25 pound dog, people are gonna look at me and say, Robbie, that's ridiculous. Like this is, this is the dumbest thing you've ever said. So if I say it factually accurate, that story lands flat on its face. If I deliver it emotionally accurate, and that could just be, I turn the corner and I see this dog, eyes were locked in on me, teeth out and snarling at me. And all of a sudden it just took off coming at me full speed. And I knew in that moment, if I didn't make it to that fence quickly, something really bad was going to happen, right? That's an entirely different story. And it's not factually accurate. It's factually close, but it's emotionally accurate as to how I was feeling in that moment. And so my audience can be engaged and start picturing in their head. Now, maybe in their head, they're thinking, oh, this is like an 80 pound, huge dog, like super, just like vicious and, and feral and all sorts of things. And that's fine because the point of the story is to deliver that emotion that you felt so that they can connect with you on that level. And so I think that's where most stories fall flat is they deliver this factual accurate story instead of the emotionally accurate story. And people want to gravitate towards emotion. Like if you can make them feel something, that's how we make it not fall flat. Yeah, I think that's, I'm really glad that I asked that question for sure. I think that changes a lot of the way that I approach things because like I'm always the type of person like my girlfriend's telling a story I'm like no it didn't actually happen that way and it's like I like to do that and maybe I shouldn't maybe that's maybe that's a really bad characteristic but you have on your um your personal user manual like that's something that you believe like we're only remembering the last time that we remembered something and it's like we don't actually know what really happened like so transferring what we felt about it I think I think that's actually really powerful. So sweet. <laughs> it's basically, I say there are no facts. There's only perspectives. And again, when I say that, that's not to say like, I, yeah. I'm discounting like gravity and things of that nature. Like, please people like, let's, let's have some common sense here. But it's that everybody, if we look at like the news, right, the exact same story is going to be presented completely different ways, depending on who's, who's on the news. And so that, that's more of what I mean when I, when I say that type of thing. Yeah. I, I have one more question kind of in the performative speaking subject area, then we might transition to some of your audience building and writing uh, types of questions. But all we've discussed so far has been about what you do actively as the speaker to be a more effective speaker. But in you know one of your articles and on your course, you talk about how it's equally important, if not more important, to be an active listener. That's like an essential skill in being a performative speaker. So how does that play into the whole picture? Yeah. So because I... I'm teaching performance speaking in a way that's holistic as a speaker, because I think people get this wrong. Public speaking is not just getting up on a stage and delivering a talk. Public speaking is literally anytime you talk because you're speaking to somebody else. That means it's in public. 
whatever you want to say, like, that's what we need to teach people to be. When it comes to active listening, obviously that's like big in conversations and negotiations and things of that nature. You, you have to, you have to be taking that into account. People suck these days at that. Like it is unbelievable how, how poorly people listen to one another. And if you just pay attention, you can learn so much. And so like the key to active listening, right? is like, it sounds just actually paying attention to what the person has to say, not formulating your next thought while they're speaking, taking a second to think through what they said, and then responding in a way that is really meaningful. And what it does is it gives you a ton of information. It allows you to really navigate conversations, negotiations, whatever it is, presentations, pitches in a really meaningful way, because you're not, you're not missing part of the context. Like you're getting the entirety of what that person is saying and then responding in an accurate manner. And like, when we think about speaking, it should really be like, I kind of like to say, we want to hit these three, three C's, right? You want to be, you want to be clear. You want to be concise and you want to be confident. And how can we be clear and concise if we don't listen to the entire thing that was just said to us? Like, how do we, how do we answer it? Like, how can we be confident in what we're saying if we don't know half of what the person just said? So for me, like active listening is, is a huge skill. And even when we think about it in a non like verbal way, when you're speaking, you should also be paying attention to your audience, right? Like part of being a great speaker is reading the cues, reading your audience, seeing what happens. And so like those can be micro expressions. Those can be obvious, like very obvious expressions. And you want to pick up on these things and figure out like, when do I d dive deeper? When do I pull back? When do I change it? Like there's moments that you'll see people, you know, dozing off in, in your speech. Well, you know what? Like you need to do something to change it. Then don't just like continue on. You continue on and you, you've lost them. You're speaking to a wall at that point. So let's do something to wake them up. Let's all of a sudden explode out. Like you would see, you know, like Leonidas in the movie 300. Like let's, let's do something to wake people up. Or if you realize they're super engaged, keep digging, like keep going all in on that point because something is resonating with them and you can really set that hook deeper and deeper and deeper. So being an active listener and paying attention and being aware of what's going on is incredibly important for a speaker. Now, that being said, when you first are giving big presentations, it's harder to focus on that because you don't have those skills. And one of the things I love from one of my friends, Justin Mikaloy, who was the, the former speechwriter for General Petraeus and General Mattis and Secretary Panetta, is he talks about this idea of pattern recognition. And like, you don't actually get this ability to pattern recognize until you've been in enough situations and settings and speeches to really pick up on this. So when I'm talking about reading an audience, that probably comes later. Active listening though is something you can do from the very beginning. And in fact, that people absolutely 100% should be because you'll make yourself so much more likable if you just pay attention to people and listen to them. Yeah, actually, the first time you and I actually met in an informal capacity was in a clubhouse room with Justin. And that kind of put you at the top of my head. I was like, why haven't I interviewed Robbie yet? And that's, that's kind of why we're here. But that's such an interesting framework I've been thinking a lot about. I think I shared this analogy on a previous podcast episode uh, about like learning to handstand. And it's like all these skills have the same. You can only concentrate on learning one aspect of the skill at once. So if you're trying to become a better public speaker and you're not yet confident in your ability to speak and you're trying to concentrate on the audience, you're going to like, if you're doing a handstand, right? Like you're going to lose balance. Like the first step is just learning how to be able to hold balance before you start reacting. Like your friends start throwing stuff at you. If you didn't know how to balance in the first place at all, even without that happening, you're especially not going to be able to do it with the additional distraction. So it's forcing people when they're learning to be sequential and single-minded. I want to ask you a question about your writing because we kind of started this discussion with 
your course, you launched it, you had the skill set you built from years of trial, literally years of trials, not trial and error, but years of trials, literal trials. And it was a successful launch because as you just demonstrated in the past 20 minutes, you have a deep understanding of what you're teaching. Uh, but a second part of why it was successful is you already had started establishing a following through your writing. So at what point did you start doing that? Uh, and what was your strategy and philosophy that enabled you to be effective so quickly in getting following for the set of ideas you were teaching? So first off, I love writing. At some point, I love to just have time to sit down and write a whole bunch and not have any distractions. So one day that that will come. And for me, writing is this, this way, and I think David Probe does a really nice job of describing it as this serendipity vehicle. And I really do believe that. So I think by putting our work out in, out there and our thoughts, it attracts people. It finds people who resonate with us. So instead of me having to go out and find all of them, I can write a piece, put it out there, and it brings people to me. In fact, I've seen that time and time again now, especially as kind of my writing has matured and, and, and elevated in a lot of ways. Like I look back at some of my early writing, I'm like, oh, my writing now is so much better, as, as it should be. I think that's just a process. In terms of building that audience, though, I think some of that was just following a very strategic plan when it came to how to use Twitter. And that was pick three topics, talk about them on a regular basis, just build that following so people knew exactly what they were going to get when they came to my page. And just talk about these ideas, write about them, put these ideas out there into the world. So everyone knew, hey, Robbie is really consistent with this stuff. He's thinking about this on a deep level. He's got the background to back it up. And so if I'm looking for something like that, Robbie is someone, someone that I can come to. That was really my, my thinking, my strategy behind that. And it really just takes an ability to stay consistent. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of times like I just want to pop off on random topics on Twitter or different places. And you just have to stay disciplined enough to not do that, right? Like we had an election going on. It would have been great to sit and, and talk all sorts of politics on my timeline. You know what? That would have destroyed my, my brand building that was going on. Like people don't come to my page for politics. They come for how do I be a better speaker? How do I be a better creator? Like what's the founder journey like? What does this stuff look like? How do you use Twitter right? And so I think that's the biggest thing people make the mistake of is not really dialing in. I think Jack has, Jack Butcher has that great visual where it's like, you know, like this is where most people quit or something, or like this is where it looks pointless. And it's like, you know, the bar graph where it's just like here, here, here. And then all of a sudden it's like sky high. That really is kind of what happens. And you just have to be willing to put in the work through all those little lulls and, and low points before it takes off. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what just happened? I mean, it felt like that when I first was jumping in clubhouse rooms and was having thousand plus people rooms listening to me talk. Like that's when you actually think about that, right? A thousand people listening to you live. That is bonkers. That's a lot of people. Like if you were in an auditorium, it's, nuts. it's a big auditorium yeah. to be listening to you live talking. And so when I started, you know, really using Twitter and really writing and doing all this sort of stuff back in July, that would have never been possible. I would have gone on and it would have been like five people. But by staying consistent, by building this out, by writing consistently, it's like in January, I wrote 30 articles in 30 days and they were like full length articles. And that was incredibly successful and incredibly fruitful for me. But that really started to attract the right people into what I wanted to build. And it's just kind of taken off from there. So I know your most successful tweet, uh, we talked about this on Twitter yesterday, out of the many hundreds or if not thousands of consistent tweets, one popped off especially, uh, was that ideas that excite you are the best alarm clocks. You said that is by far your most successful tweet to date. What inspired that tweet and what exactly do you mean by that? So 
I've had like, I've had very successful threads, but I don't consider that like my best tweet. Like this is just like a one-off standalone tweet that has done the best. It's gotten the, like a bunch of visuals made out of it. It's been quoted in like places that I would have never expected. I don't, I honestly don't know why that one popped off so much. Like I still, I still really don't understand it mm-hmm. because I think it's like a fine tweet, but I don't think it's anything that incredibly impressive, but maybe I just have a, a poor view kind of of my own work. It was, I think it was like a Saturday morning in all honesty that I woke up and I was really kind of in the thick of building out performative speaking. Because I think I, I think I did that sometime, what, in, in August, I think is when that original one came out, something like that. And that was really when I was just like going all in on building out the course. And I was super excited. I mean, I was probably working 20 hour days, most days. I was on Zoom calls all the time. Again, it's very like true to the founder life of trying to build something out where you're just grinding. Except it didn't feel like grinding. It felt like a ton of fun. I was excited. Like I didn't want to sleep. I was constantly coming up with new ideas, constantly building, ready to, to just do anything I could to make it successful. Because I was so excited about what, what I saw the future being and where this could go. So for me, I, I just woke up one morning and it was, it was early. It was like six o'clock in the morning when I thought of it. And I think I posted it fairly soon thereafter. And it was, it was just like, I don't need an alarm clock. Like I'm just waking up. I'm going to sleep at, you know, three o'clock in the morning and waking up at six, seven o'clock in the morning and, and ready to like go back to work and having no issue whatsoever. So I don't know, it just kind of hit me. And then I was playing around with different tweet formats. And I think that was still at the time that I was writing annoying tweet formats like that, where it's like the one line followed by a space followed by the second line where there's no punctuation. And I don't know, people eat that stuff up, even though it drives me nuts because I'm like, this, this looks so hideous to me in the way that it's written. Uh, it, and it just blows my, my mind because every now and then it'll get picked up and like, I'll start getting notifications from it again, even though it's been months now. I mean, we're in February. That was in August. I still get notifications on a regular basis of people like quote tweeting it, of like liking it, of putting in comments, of doing visuals. I'm like, this thing was back in August. Like, I don't think it's that interesting, but apparently people do. So that's why I said it, it's had the longest legs. Like most tweets are ephemeral, right? They like, they're there in the moment and they're gone. And this one, it just continues to live on. It's so funny. You just have no idea what's going to cause that exponential growth. But I'm, I want to go back and touch on that. Like the Jack Butcher visual that you're talking about, it's been my background for months now. And like, you know, it's something that you see in all of these different stories is just like this long grind and then just like out of nowhere, or at least you feel like that, you know, like where you sort of blow up and it's like in your, in your experience, what was the emotional difference between having that exponential increase in, in follower count or like, I guess, credibility on the internet versus your time as a trial lawyer and like how, how are those two like separate careers um, related or like, I don't know how I'm asking this question. I, I think I, I understand Colin can, can riff on that uh-huh. pretty easily. So I think when you're as a trial lawyer, the interesting thing is you see some of the same issues where you see people ahead of you and you're like, they're not that good. Like they're not doing anything interesting, but they've been there long enough. They put in the time so that like they've kind of built up this credibility. And so you're trying to do everything you can as a trial lawyer to start getting that credibility behind your name. So people start recognizing you. 
And like, it, it feels like you're again, running up against a wall. Like, why is no one noticing? 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 And then it's just like, bam, one day, oh, they noticed. And all of a sudden, like I went from, you know, trying cases, that I was like, ah, I'm not that excited about this. I'm not that excited to, hey, here's a super high profile case. We want you to handle it because we've been seeing what you're doing. Like, go, go run. And you look at it and you're just like, oh, like that's, that's like 50 steps higher than where I just was at. And you're essentially like, oh, okay, someone, someone's noticing now. And then they, you know, that person for me at least was telling me like, Hey, we, we've been, we've been keeping our eye on you. Like we see what you've been doing. There's a reason we're giving you this. Like it's time for you to start running. And I was like, cool. Okay. So it worked. I just didn't know that it was working. Like I didn't know I had those eyes on me during that period of time, which I think was a really nice way of thinking about the online space too, because you don't know who's watching the stuff you're putting out there, even if they're not interacting, right? So many people don't interact with your tweets or with your writing, but it resonates with them. And there's going to come a time where like, they're going to put your name out for something, or they're going to reach out to you. They're going to send you a job offer because they've been paying attention to your writing. Even though they've never liked a single tweet, they've never commented, they've never retweeted. You don't even know who they are. And then all of a sudden it comes out and you're like, oh, that's a really cool opportunity. This is great. So I think it's a very similar experience where you just don't realize the eyes are on you until you realize they're on you and they have been there the whole time. You just have to stay consistent and continue to build. Now, the one thing I'll say about this is in the online world versus the real world, the online world at times is very frustrating to me because I do think that there's a lot of people in the online space who have credibility that don't deserve it. Because if you actually were to approach them in the real world, like they, they don't have any real world, real world results. They haven't done anything. They haven't built anything. They've been able to put up like this facade because they're essentially behind a keyboard and behind a computer screen and things of that nature. I think that is going to be the biggest struggle as we continue to move forward in this current kind of like online age is figuring out who is worth actually listening to, who has real credibility and credentials and expertise and things to, to guide people because you can get, you can get, you know, advice from anyone right now online. And for all you know, it could be somebody who has never had any success. They're just putting themselves out there like they have. And that's really scary to me because I think there's a lot of people that are going to fall, fall victim to some, some people who just don't know what they're talking about. And it's gonna create a lot of devastating effects on people. It's gonna ruin lives. And so that to me is the biggest problem where at least in the real world, people were like putting my face and, and my voice to what I was doing. They were watching my results. They were actually seeing the real results that I was achieving instead of just like a follower count. And I see this right now on, on Clubhouse. There are people who are going into Clubhouse rooms and just sitting in there all day to just build up follower count. They're not adding anything. They're not building anything. They're not giving any advice. And at some point, they're gonna be a couple thousand followers to their account just because they've been sitting in rooms. And then they're going to act like they're an expert in something because they have, they're going to say, look, all these people follow me. I must know what I'm talking about. Except if you track that trajectory, you're like, no, they don't. And so I think that that's the frustrating part to me is the way you can game a lot of the online system means you don't actually have to back up those follower counts, those, you know, signals that are sent to people with anything real. I think that's a really interesting dynamic that occurs. I do think not in defense of the internet, but you know, fraud, fraudulent people or people espousing credibility without the actual skills or knowledge to back it up. Eventually there comes a point 
when they get found out. Like they release a course and that course teaches absolutely nothing and people get pissed off about it. Or they start actually giving people advice and then people are like, wait, this advice, like hopefully ideally, you know, usually when that happens, it's, it's short-lived uh, because eventually their luck runs out. But I wanted to transition now to the bonus round some kind of more rapid fire, faster questions we wanted to ask you just related to different blog posts or, or other things that we're curious about. One question I have is you have this post about the two books that you reread every year. Uh, one of them for our work week, it's been discussed many, many times on this podcast. Uh, but I want to ask you about the other one, which is Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. Could you tell us basically what that book's about and why you choose to reread it every year? Gates of Fire was really what like the movie 300 is based off of. So obviously Frank Miller did a, a graphic novel for 300, but the story of Thermopylae is told by Stephen Pressfield in his book, Gates of Fire. And a, a, lot, of mili- a lot of military leaders will read this book because obviously it's talking about a battle that's very famous, but it's also an incredible leadership book in terms of like the, the things that Stephen Pressfield writes about in there and how the leaders of Sparta were thinking about different ideas about like the opposite of, of fear is not fearlessness. And like, they're really struggling with this idea of like, what is the opposite of fear? And how do we, you know, treat people in our society? How do we treat people who are lower than us in society? Like there's all these sort of ideas of leadership and working together with people and leading them in a really inspiring way and taking ownership of ideas and situations, but it's also a beautiful storytelling book. So for me, actually, obviously I love storytelling and Kyle, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. One of my, I don't know if it's like strangest pieces of advice is not to read books to teach you how to tell stories. It's to just go read great stories. I think that that's much more effective. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Pressfield does an incredible job in this book of telling the story, using descriptive language, playing around with structure, building characters out, playing around with time, and really like transporting you through this where I feel like I'm there with all the characters in the book, even though I have no idea what it looks like, what it feels like, anything like that. It's just a beautiful way of telling the story. So for me, I read it for multiple reasons storytelling, leadership, and also it's just an incredible read. And I always just enjoy reading it. Got to pick that up. So this is not really a bonus round type of question, but over 2020, you know, you've changed your life from trial lawyer to, to leaving your law firm and starting that new law firm and then performative speaking, write a passage, this whole online world that you've opened up to yourself. And, and this is a question that we asked Dickie Bush, who I know you're familiar with. It's like, he's created this whole world for himself online in a time that is very different than the normal world. And our question to him and my question to you is like, how do you plan on changing or sustaining this world that you built for yourself when bars are back open and, and, and vacations are, are available to you and you don't have as much free time and the courts are back open and that type of thing. What do you think about that? So for me, when it comes to courts being back open, realistically, I mean, my goal is only to, to handle one or two cases that are incredibly important to me. So that, that doesn't take that much time in all honesty. In terms of how do I continue to build, even knowing that this has changed a little bit, right? When the world opens back up. So I think there's a couple of ways to deal with that one. This online space, has been well-established now. That is not going to go anywhere. 
So like, as long as you continue to do the right things, you're going to continue to build the community aspect, those sort of things, because you can bring people together from across the world. And that's the unique thing. If you do it right, you bring people across the world who can actually build together, make friendships, do cool, cool stuff. And even in the real world, you can't do that. You're still, you know, you're still constrained by your location. So if I want to talk to somebody in, in New York right now, like I can't just, I can't get in my car and drive to them. It's going to take me two days to drive there. But if I want to talk to them and workshop an idea about <clears throat> public speaking or writing or whatever it is, we get on a Zoom call and we run that and, and we do it right now in this moment. So I think that that changes things and we'll, that will stay. Additionally, I think that I'll be doing things in a hybrid format, actually, where like I am doing things in the real world as well. And I'm also doing them online. So like when I'm teaching public speaking and teaching performance speaking, why wouldn't I be having workshops that are available in person as well? Why wouldn't I be running a weekend workshop where 20, 30 people come and take it and we actually go through all these skills with me actually in person live with them running through these ideas. So I think it's it's gonna be a blend of these ideas. And I think that the best people, the ones who are really thinking this through are gonna be really well prepared and situated to handle that and just really move fluidly and, and just have this kind of nimble approach to building out, you know, their, their influence and their impact through different, different mediums. I think the way that Dickie answered a different question with the same kind of theme was that the things that COVID has made more convenient will stay to be more convenient, but the things that has made suck will go back to being so they don't suck. So for you to be able to, you know, just to workshop an idea with someone doesn't necessarily justify a hundred dollar, like a multi hundred dollar flight to New York city, just for the two of you to battle an idea for 30, 45 minutes, being able to hop on a zoom call where you currently are standing right now uh, is massively convenient, but to truly transform someone's ability and confidence speaking to a group of people in person, like that's hopefully eventually the goal for a lot of these students, right. Is to like be better at speaking in person, not just be better at speaking in front of a camera. They need that actual practice doing that thing in that actual situation. Yeah. I mean, it it brings me to, to a point like this week, I'm going to go to, to Austin actually go physically there because I have a client that I'm working with who's a founder who's in in fundraising right now. And I'm going to go one-on-one and we're just going to work. Right. And so because there's a value in actually being together and, and working one-on-one, but like, that's worth it because we're talking about raising, you know, millions of dollars. Whereas if I was going to, I can't do that for one person who, you know, wants just like a one-off training. So like this is where the online space still with the ability to scale makes a lot of sense. So there's going to be a blend for those ideas. So I have a follow-up kind of more fun, less serious question. Uh, You talk a lot in your writing about some of your early motivation for getting into this entrepreneurial stuff, getting into the content creation world is an additional layer of independence and freedom and kind of the things that entrepreneurship and and independent income earn you, uh, ultimately for the goal of having location independence. So additionally, as a post-COVID type follow-up question, what would be one of the first couple of destinations that you're motivated to go to? Like you've been working so hard to achieve a location independent income to a large extent, it sounds like you have. So where are you motivated to go? What do you want to do with kind of the freedom you've earned for yourself with the courses you've created? Yeah, I really want to be able to be a member of the world. And that sounds weird, but like, I don't want to just vacation places and see them for a week and leave. I want to actually live places for months at a time and experience the ebbs and the flows, the daily cadence that people go through when people are going to work. Like I want that to be part of my life. I don't want to be like sitting at a, you know, at a cafe while everyone else is like scrambling to go to work. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not living in their normal cadence. So for me, that's very much part of what I want to do. 
places I want to go pretty early on. So Maui, I go pretty much every year just because I have a ton of friends there. That's one that I want to go to very quickly. I'm very interested in, in spending a few months in Bali because just so many friends have told me kind of about the energy and the vibe there. I think that that would make a lot of sense. And then I, I'm still like a huge Europe fan just because I love the ability to walk place to place, have little restaurants, kind of that that old world charm that so many of those those places have. So I'll probably spend some time in in Portugal, which is one of my favorite countries in the world, and just really embrace kind of that that culture. So I think those would probably be the three that I'm eyeing very early on, and then I'll expand from there. I think that's a, a pretty solid roster, and wish you luck in going after that, and hopefully now we'll be seeing some social media content and tutorials with uh, the typical influencer backdrop, one or two of them, right? Off some balcony in some fancy place with the beach behind you, teaching Shout public speaking on the beach. It, w- it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be bad. No. Uh, speaking of kind of that video content, one new area you're getting into has been YouTube and prep for this. I saw a lot of, you know, you've been hustling on YouTube, making a lot of great videos there as well. What is your plan for that platform? What are you hoping uh, the results you're getting for people and kind of goals for yourself as a creator in that medium? That is more just like, again, staying super consistent because that growth is slow. And if you listen to anyone who does YouTube and does it well, it generally, you know, Ali Abdal, who I've got to know pretty well, is like, it takes a hundred for things to really start you know, picking up. And so my goal is to hit a hundred by the end of this year and then see where things go. Because I, I do believe just saying consistent will take you far. My, my goals there again are just to deliver value to people, to teach them how to do stuff. And I'm using a lot of movies and television references to help people understand ideas. I just realize that there are different audiences on different places. So as a content creator, why wouldn't I be exposing myself to as many people as possible to get these ideas out there and hopefully help them? I also think it's important, I wrote about this the other day, is I think there's too many creators who are focusing only on one platform and that doesn't give a well-rounded version of who that person is. So like you can watch videos that I put out on Instagram, which are a little bit different than the videos that I put out on YouTube, which is different than what I write about, which is different from my tweets, right? So like all these ideas start to build on one another and you get a full picture of who I am as a person, as a creator, kind of what I think, what I like. And I think that that's really important as we build out personal brands. And I love what Polina said recently on an interview with uh, Bilal, and she was talking about owning her name. And when she left to go and write under her own name, the power of that, you know, her husband Pomp was saying like, your name is very powerful. And the example she used was when Oprah doesn't, when Oprah walks into a room, she doesn't say, oh, I'm just Oprah. She says, I'm Oprah. And that, that name Oprah means so much. And what I'm trying to build is like, who is Robbie? When I walk into a room and I say, I'm Robbie, it's not, oh, I'm just Robbie. It's I'm Robbie. And everybody knows what that means and knows who I am. Yeah. I love that long-term goal. I think that's awesome. So we really appreciate you coming on. I got one last question for you. Could you power rank sparkling water brands for me? All right. So for this, as, as anyone who knows me, Waterloo, please, please sponsor Waterloo. me. Okay. Because on every podcast I'm on, I'm always drinking Waterloo. Uh, I continue to put them in front of lots of eyeballs and one day they're going to come through for me. But Waterloo is my go-to just because it's, it's fairly priced and the flavors are good. It doesn't taste like garbage. But Topo is my favorite sparkling water. Yeah, I was going to say, why is Topo number one? That was, to- I, I didn't to- want to ruin the ad spot, but. Topo yeah. so, well, it's not an ad spot because Waterloo doesn't do anything for me. I just, I do love it. I drink a ton of it. 
Topo is too expensive is, is, is my real, real take on it. And uh, Waterloo is much more fairly priced. So I just tend to gravitate towards that. So LaCroix, LaCroix is not in the picture, huh? We don't, we don't, we, we, we don't do that. Answers my question. I'm, I'm also a Topo guy, so I'm right there with you. Yeah, I do have one more question I wanted to ask because we've had a good string of luck asking it in the last couple of interviews. I've seen a lot of interviews too, and it's not something we did originally, but we've had good success with it. It's kind of asking a very open-ended, very general. Uh, we asked you a lot of questions. We covered a lot of ground, but is there one parting kind of piece of advice? Most of our audience is roughly a reflection of ourselves. They're ambitious college students. They've just graduated. They're about to graduate. They're a year from graduating. Uh, you've had a very successful in a number of different arenas kind of life after college. If you'd have one piece of advice you'd give to someone in our situation that kind of explains or has helped propel your success, what would that piece of advice be? I think have a very clear vision about what you want out of life and then be willing to move at a pace that feels like you're going to fall at any point, but like you're just on that edge and as long as you push just on that edge and stay there, you'll be okay. So when you feel like you're moving too fast, as long as you're not going head over head over heels, you're, you're doing it right. Well, I don't know the, the first interview we asked that question, but whatever the number is, we're three for three or four for four. I, I like that answer. Clarity about your vision. Uh, that's a super important reminder and a good kind of way to think about the pacing to make sure you're on it, but not going to burn out, but also not moving too slow. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, if, thank y'all. Uh, you just mentioned a minute or two ago, you're creating in a lot of places, uh, but if you want to send listeners of this podcast to find you across the internet or in one specific spot, where should we be directing them? I mean, obviously the place I'm most active is Twitter, which is at Robbie Crab, And then the on deck performance speaking website will be beyonddeck.com backslash performative dash speaking. Well, awesome, Robbie. We really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, y'all. And that wraps up our conversation with Robbie Crabtree. I really, really enjoyed it. You know, three of my big takeaways, the first of which um, is his point about the difference between factually and emotionally accurate stories. You know, that's something that I've usually been a stickler on throughout my life is just like my dad would be telling a story and I'd be like, no, like that's not true. We were at this restaurant. And when he said that, I sort of looked back and I was like, wait, maybe I was the one that was in the wrong there. Like maybe that's not the way that you're supposed to, to be. So I, I, that was a big takeaway for me. And then I thought the idea, you know, it, it's obvious that listening would make you a good speaker, but to hear someone who literally teaches hundreds of people how to speak, espouse being a good listener as a excellent way of getting better at speaking, it, it just proves to me that, that it is as important as anything else. And then the last thing is, you know, in that framework that he was talking about with making a good speech, I think it was goal, emotion, hook, theme, dismount. The The theme and the dismount to me were very interesting and in how the theme is like the one central idea that you want people to take away. You know, anybody that's listening to you is probably going to only remember one thing out of the entire speech and you want to be the one that's determining what that is and getting that across and sort of having that as your North star, as you move through your, your speech. And then the dismount was just a really cool, uh, visualization. I think for me, like the Olympics, like the girl on the high bars, and then she falls down and lands perfectly. And that just makes the entire routine. It's like, if you mess that up, nobody's going to remember the rest of the speech. Like you have to, to do that well. And I think that that's something that I've struggled with 
and I'm sure if you're a fan of this podcast, you've seen me sort of fumble the end of a question and it ruin all the good work that I'd put into, into building it up. So it's like, got to work on the dismounts. So let me, let me land on my feet here and hand it over to you, Lewis. Well played smooth transition, Kyle. I think that what you're saying there, you know, people remember in any speech longer than let's say two minutes, people remember the beginning uh, and you have to get that right. Cause if you don't start right, people are just going to tune out from the start and you're not going to rope them back in. And if you don't end right, they're going to remember with a sour taste in your mouth and kind of just move on to the next thing. And crucially about the middle, right? If you have more than one thing you're trying to teach them, they're going to end up not having a North star, not having anything to grasp onto. We're not really good at juggling mentally and they're going to kind of fumble them all. So with that being said, I'm going to give you three takeaways, not one, because uh, I wrote down three. So let's just throw out what I just said. I first think that his idea, uh, I want to start out by saying that Robbie's journey as a content creator is literally like younger than this podcast. So he started writing, tweeting, all of this stuff in July. And here we are in February of 2021. So eight months later, if that was quick math, I'm not sure. He's in that short period of time, amassed a substantial following, almost 10,000 followers on Twitter. He started a course, it got acquired. He's got a competitive application process to now even be one of his students. He's really taken off in a short amount of time. So if that doesn't inspire you to, to get in the game and see what can happen if you start putting yourself out there, uh, should because that's just incredible. One lesson he had about that content creation is that it takes a hundred times for things to start to kick in. He said he's befriended Ali Abdal uh, in the process of making his course. And Ali's like one of the most popular YouTubers about productivity and learning and truly a influential voice on like how to become a successful YouTuber. And his idea is, you know, most people don't see any traction on their channel until hundred videos. Most people on Twitter, you know, tweet every day for hundred days before they start to notice anything. Most podcasts, Seth Godin, for example, the author of a ton of popular books, like this is marketing, the dip, 20 other bestsellers, uh, his rule for coming on podcasts, unless they're just astronomically successful right off the bat is he'll say yes, if you've done hundred episodes. So that's just a general principle that people starting something should keep in mind uh, as a reasonable place to get before really evaluating whether or not you've been successful or failure if you've not even put in a proper effort. My second takeaway is Robbie's strategy for Twitter explains why he's been on good on Twitter and why I haven't been is the idea of having three buckets that define all of your tweets and sticking to that. You don't just, you know, dip your feet into anything interesting at the time. You can find a way to tie the zeitgeist to what you're talking about. So what the election can teach us about public speaking, what the GameStop thing can teach us about this other core area I talk about, but not just, I'm a commentator about public speaking, but this is happening this week. So I'm gonna give my thoughts on it. My Twitter account has been much less organized than that. It's got maybe like 25 bubbles and all of which don't have consistent in them. And so that's probably a good takeaway. People have to know what they're getting from you. If you've listened to this, it's a very clear lesson what you're going to get from Robbie. Anyone who listened to this is like, he's probably going to teach about this. If I want to learn about that, I'm going to follow him. And that's an easier decision. That is a really valuable lesson. Uh, and third, this is kind of my equivalent takeaway to what you said about a pattern in yourself that wasn't super productive of correcting people's stories because they didn't mention the right restaurant. For me, I kind of felt I like looked down upon when people would just give the generic analogy, right? It's like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take, or there's the scene in Harry Potter with Harry this and that. And I was like, that's stupid. Like think of something better. But the problem is that, it, or the utility of those things is that people are familiar with it. So you're able to really quickly reference a complicated, nuanced, emotional circumstance as depicted in like the scene in Rocky where he's gotten beat up by Apollo Creed 
and he finally gets up in like round 14 and like there's that look in his eyes and like everyone knows what you're talking about like it would take so many words to paint that same picture of someone just getting the absolute crap beat out of them and how they get back up and how they look in the opposite person's face it would take a long time to like rebuild that same story with all the context or i could just be like this popular movie that 80 percent of the population has seen this moment from it and that being a starting point for emotional resonance that is just super powerful and i'm no longer going to be as uh, as much of an a-hole when people are making generic analogies so thanks robbie that is all i took away from this episode it's not, but it's the three most important things. I hope you have found value and made your own notes if there are things that stuck out to you so you can hopefully remember them. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to listen to another episode. My opinion, our last three episodes were pretty killer. Talgur talked about spending time in Bali, which is one of the places that Robbie had mentioned in this episode. Tal's traveled the world, done 100 insane life goals over 10 years. Pretty awesome episode. What the things he did and learned from that. Dickie Bush is the person who inspired Robbie to write 30 posts in January, which Robbie said was, quote, incredibly useful. So I would encourage you to check out our conversation with Dickie. And then before that, we talked about Jeff Woods, who is the podcast host behind the book, the best, the best-selling book, The One Thing uh, by Jay Papasan and Gary Keller awesome podcast episode as well. Our last three episodes are pretty fire. If you enjoyed this one, go check them out, subscribe. And if you have something to say to Kyle and I, hit us up on Twitter. Mention Robbie in there too. Why not? And tell us what you think. Thanks so much for listening. See you in a week with the next episode. See ya.